Here we go. Mixed media music. We, we, we had to get better at this. For some reason, like coming out of a transition, it just looked really like weird on my end. Okay. okay. Um, sorry. Okay, all good. Well, welcome to mixed media music. And as you can see, if you're if you're watching this anywhere, you can see that uh, the topic is um, ranking '90s animated film scores. And you know, when I decided I was going to do this. You know, I figured I, I could I could do this kind of succinctly, um, but they kind of was preparing for this segment. I realized one there are a ton of these scores, and I don't I don't know as many of them as I as I want to. You know, there are some really famous ones, of course, famous '90s animated films, and I'm going to extend this just very slightly. I'm going to explain what my like window for these films um, is in a second. And there are also a lot of ones that are like not very well-known films um, and not necessarily the most well-known scores, but if you know the scores, people are really devoted to them. Um, so I figured that this is probably going to be a two-part two part series, mini-series, I guess, talking about these films, um, as I think they're really worth talking about. So I'm not probably not really going to get to like an actual ranking uh, today, but I'm going to kind of give a general overview of like what I'm talking about. What are some of the general characteristics of, of these scores and why they're interesting uh, before we kind of we'll save the ranking for, for the next uh, next the follow up to this. So, OK, so 90s animated movies. And I'm going to so my window, what I'm going to consider is going to generally be what is not not just Disney films, but films that take place, you know, they're created and released in the era of the Disney Renaissance. That begins just slightly before 90s in 1989 with Little Mermaid. That's going to be my starting date, 89, up till about 2000. That's kind of when the re- Disney Renaissance peters out a little bit. And I don't know if maybe you'd say that Lilo and Stitch is kind of the end of that era. And thereafter, they're kind of transitioning to more 3D animation. Um, so pretty much the, all of these films are 2D animation. And of course, the bulk of them are, are Disney films from the, the Disney Renaissance. But there are also some other companies that are putting these things out. And generally, those films are not quite as well known um, unless you were a kid of the 90s, um, which, you know, I am, I'm from the, the kind of a tail end of the 90s, so I did grow up with some of these films, um, not all of them. Uh, of course, I'm most familiar with the uh, Disney films, but I know also some, some of the other ones. Um, so, yeah, generally we're going to say 89 to about 2000. Okay, so roughly just barely past the 90s. On, on either end, there's some really interesting things that happen with these scores. And obviously, you know, it's kind of a revival, you know, the, as the, the term Renaissance implies, a revival of this art form, you know, these kind of animated films that had been a staple of Walt Disney animation from the beginning, um, but had kind of, you know, gone through a dry patch. And I think that also, you know, inspired a lot of other studios to, to, you know, get in on this sort of 
2D animated art form. And I'm not really a film hist. I don't know a ton about film history. So I'm sure there are some, you know, factors that influence why exactly that happened when it did. Um, but on the musical end, um, you know, this starts with Alan Menken uh, and his score for The Little Mermaid, which I've talked about before. That's it's a score that um, you know Menken is was is not a film. This one was not a film composer. He was a Broadway composer um, working largely with Howard Ashman, and you know doing things like um, Little Shop of Horrors was probably his biggest thing before that. Um, the Little Mermaid, and you know he he ends up getting involved with uh, with this project via um, his friend, lyricist, uh, Howard Ashman, who was brought in, you know, Disney hired him and he convinced him to bring in uh, Mencken. And so Mencken is kind of tasked with, um, in, you know, inheriting and carrying on the, the Disney animated film music legacy. And it's a really, really strong legacy going back to uh, Snow White which is a you know hugely influential film, although we don't necessarily think of that uh, today. But it had a big influence on you know foreign filmmakers. I think um, Eisenstein over uh, in Russia, you know, talked about it as like the pinnacle of filmmaking. Um, and it is you know if it was a very significant score at, um, in its time. Again, not so many people tend to think of now. Um, and that legacy, you know, of these really rich full orchestral scores, you know, that continued through Disney's, um, all, all the years, you know, up until, up until Mankin. Um, but as the kind of form had, you know, kind of fallen out of favor, um, Mankin is kind of tasked with taking on that legacy and building on it in, you know, in a kind of renewed way. And, and he really did a fantastic job of that. And the score from The Little Mermaid kind of sets the tone um, for a lot of these films, even the non-Disney ones. And another thing to note is that, you know, a lot of the people who are scoring these films are really big-name composers. Alan Silvestri, James Horner, Mencken became an enormous name through these, um, Jerry Goldsmith did the score for Mulan, which is kind of surprising. You know, Goldsmith is kind of a serious, mature composer. So, you know, we got a lot of really big, obviously Hans Zimmer too, um, with uh, both the Prince of Egypt and the Lion King. Um, and also bringing in, you know, popular songwriters like Elton John from the Lion King. There's kind of the shift uh, we see where in the you know late seventies and and eighties these large scale kind of fantasy films, which most of these are, and they're not terribly real. Most of these are not terribly realistic films, or they are realistic and they, they deal with history, but from a kind of fantastical point of view, like um, an American tale. We have like yes, real you know. Eastern European immigrants, but they are mice. Or, you know, Balto, uh, yes, it's a real story about a real um, medical crisis 
in Nome, Alaska, but it's told from the point of view of the famous dog, sled dog. Okay, so either kind of like remote in time or remote in that they're you know told through in a fantastical way through with fantastical non-realistic non-human characters but in this late 70s and 80s that kind of film was mostly live action that sort of you know fantasy trope and you can see that with things like star wars obviously um and there's a whole bunch of um these films in the 80s things like willow and cruel a lot of things that james horner scored and what we see with these films is that some of these uh, big composers who are coming in to do these things. Um, we're writing these kinds of massive orchestral scores for these live action films. And as these live action films stop being made um, and the kind of fantastic world, kind of kid-like world, uh, tr you know, transferred to the, um, the animated realm, they followed that. And... Most, almost all of these uh, films, whether Disney or not, uh, are also combining song with score, and you know that is obviously a hallmark of the you know Disney early legacy that Mencken carried on. Um, but it appears in lots of non-Disney films as well. We're really getting um, songs as kind of being the emotional heart of these films, and also you know having fantastic scores along with them. Um, so there's a kind of an interesting uh, question that I, I was thinking about and reminded me of, of a quote from John Powell. And John Powell, you know, and, and he's talked about this in a couple of places, and I, I couldn't find the quote I immediately thought of when I was researching this, but I found an earlier quote from him that says roughly the same thing. So John Powell... He's he's talking about later animated films and 3D animated films that he's worked on, although he does get his start in this era while kind of um, working with Zimmer. What what is allowed in an animated film? And I think I, I think that uh, you know what he what he has to say about the freedom of animated films and what kind of music it allows, yeah, uh, you, you know, is relevant to to the 90s. Um, so let's see, pulling up my history here apologize for the uh, delay but roughly what john powell says is that with an animated film um, there's some kind of suspension of disbelief and the there's a uh, freedom the composer has to do things that they can't do musically in a live action film at, at least not in the current age of live action films. And I think you see that, you know, even if you look at composers like um, James Horner, you know, scoring um, things in the 90s, of course, th there are things like Titanic would have enormous scores, but a lot of other, you know, serious, even like, even childish in a way, films that uh, are live action, think something like Field of Dreams, there's, it no longer, for most audiences, it it feels odd and it, it, continuing today to have uh, live action films that have just enormous wall to wall kind of lush scores. Um, but 
there's some reason uh, we are more accepting of that in an animated film. So I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna just read this quote, and I think it's I think it's relevant. So he says about scoring an animated film, there's a lot of programmatic music, and uh, in that sense, it's descriptive. Doing that in a live action film is incredibly dangerous. I know I've tried it. In animation, I had the freedom to be more connected to the action of the film. If you do do it too much, everybody uses the pejorative of Mickey Mousing, which we've talked about, which is really closely aligning with the motion in the film. And it says, but that's the style. And at its best, it's Carl Stalling in the Warner Brothers films. Some movies just do it endlessly, and it gets exhausting, but there's no need to do it. Um, so we tried to take a more sensitive role in that and allow things to have a wit and a fun to them sometimes. You know, but you can't, he says, you, you can't really do that in a live action film. And you can really get into the details, right? Uh, I just felt the animation and visuals of, you know, animated films I worked on uh, giving me a broader palette to play with. You can be more tuneful. Okay. So I think that even though he's talking mostly about um, how to train your dragon, I think those are all um, factors that are at play with these uh, 90s animated films. You know, we can ask ourselves um, why that has kind of come about in the American film watching uh, consciousness, why we, you know, kind of feel like a gigantic orchestral score to something that is not fantastic um, in some ways, whereas not other, right, uh, doesn't work very well. Um, when it certainly was the, you know, main compositional style for a large portion of of the early part of the 20th century. Um, why do you think that is, by seem- the way? Like, why do you think, mm-hmm. why do you think the change occurred um, in terms of preferred style? Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's that's a really fascinating question, and probably really complicated. Some of it has to, yeah, I mean, I think some of it has to do with changing um, opinions of you know what is good popular music, you know, introduction of different kinds of instruments, and maybe kind of on the part of filmmakers a, a desire to break away from the past. But I think by you know, the seven, late 70s, it's kind of cemented that in most films, these gigantic orchestral things just don't work in live action for the most part. I mean, if you're doing something like Star Wars, yes. And, you know, it, 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 you see it, some holdovers of that in these kind of films, you know, like Cruel and, and Willow in the 80s. But those are, you know, they kind of, taper off and i think yeah generally you just it's not what it what happens in american films today and that this kind of style is kind of reserved for these you know animated films whether they're 3d or 2d and i think the 90s is kind of where that shift becomes pretty pretty final um yeah so that that's interesting you know you you can ask yourself why that is like what does are we trying to say that you know kids are just more accepting of like this magical realism 
or or irrealism, you know, and and the orchestra is just the sound of something completely fantastical and other. Um, I don't I don't really know the answer to that question, but for whatever reason, you know, it these films kind of become the the center of the kind of musical universe that still is really focused on being tuneful. Um, and it's a feature of a lot of these scores. They're very tuneful, and a lot of them are very memorable. You know, the music doesn't hide. Uh, some of, you know, the underscore might hide, but the songs are really going to stick out in a lot of these films. One other thing that I, I think is... Uh, interesting at least for me you know as i've gotten older and and what we re-watched or watched some of these films for the first time is that i find um that the music is really where the characters shine through in a more mature way in a way that an adult can appreciate because some of these films you know if i just watch them objectively aren't quite as interesting um you know, they don't have a lot of time to develop character, but a lot of times I find that when these characters are singing, that's really there's some really subtle and things in there that kind of draw out what the actual heart of these characters are, and I really, I really love that. Like, I, I particularly love that about the Little Mermaid, but it applies to a lot of these films. Um, it's interesting too. I, I, I feel like a lot of these composers, even you know, someone like. Jerry Goldsmith, right, who has done all sorts of films in his career at that point. Um, you know, this is the kind of guy who can do and is very at home with uh, gritty, adult, dark things like Chinatown, is composing Mulan um, and doing it with a lot of authenticity, I would say. You know, they're not treating these things like, well, this is just a throwaway product to make money off of kids. Um, you know, they're, they're mm. pursuing their craft um, with great, you know, seriousness um, in their approach to these films. Um, I would say that, like, although some of these aspects, like I said, continue today in even something like Encanto, now, the, although not so much, Encanto is kind of in a t different era, but something maybe like frozen you know you can see a legacy of this but i would say that the there's a really there's a big shift that starts occurring in about 2000 um with i think lilo and such is kind of kind of the turning point it's the end of a disney renaissance and kind of the end of disney 2d animation and most of the music there is popular songs and that that works for the film because there's such an emphasis on the music of elvis presley but they're also bringing in you know contemporary artists to cover elvis presley and put in other songs too um and of course there is this like you know local color local flavor in the music of like you know hawaiian um singing which that's in there too but i think what we start seeing there is that yes, some of his earlier films have brought in people like Elton John, you know, for popular appeal, but there's kind of, I think more, there's a bit of a shift on Disney's part to bringing in, you know, artists who are relevant at that point to young people um, to do songs and the music starts becoming a little bit more 
pop oriented and the composer is less to do with the songwriters and they kind of just provide more background incidental music and the songs are geared to being kind of in the you know vein of what disney uh, thinks is was popular with young people um, on the radio so you know going for a, a more mass um, market appeal instead of just trusting i guess that audiences are still going to respond to um music that you know isn't doesn't doesn't sound like what's on the radio for them um i don't know whether that's a you know a mistake on their part or that was actually the, the you know financially that was actually the right decision i don't know i think artistically it was not the right decision um, but i think that's sort of what happens at the end of this era so yeah that's kind of a really general overview of of uh a lot of the you know the musical trends um it's a lot of music that tries to capture a, a you know a distant time and place um different cultures um but just in general it's really large orchestral music most of it wall-to-wall -wall, lots of songs that really work they're very integrated with the score in a lot of cases um yeah so those are kind of the general characteristics of I would say of 90s animated film music and there are a ton of films so we'll we'll save that for part two when i actually kind of you know give a sentence or two about each one and give the give my uh my ranking to them but i think you know it it, it represents it kind of an its own artistic era i would say this kind of music and you know they're obviously the big popular hits um a lot of the disney ones but a lot of his, some of his other lesser known, less popular scores, um, a lot of which James Horner did, um, have kind of a, a pretty devoted following amongst um, people who are into film music. So those are also worth mentioning and exploring. Yeah, really cool. <laughs> a lot of things that I never thought about in terms of the era and stuff like that. And then it brought back yeah, a lot same. of memories. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, t this is, you know, stuff that was a big part of my, a lot of these films were kind of a big part of my my childhood. Um, and, you know, I, I've talked about um, in a previous episode how kind of uh, Little Mermaid was really foundational in my, like, early musical uh, life. So, but many of these films, even if I didn't appreciate the music at the time, were, you know, that's what I watched back when I was a little kid. So they, they have that kind of nostalgia factor as well. But I think just there's great works of art regardless of how, you know, my nostalgia for them. 